From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Two guests in studio today will visit with Dr. Stanley Temple, the Beers Batscombe Professor Emeritus in Conservation at the University of Wisconsin, and E.J. Rivers is in from the Jackson Zoo. The echo parakeet, the whooping crane, the trumpeter swan, those are just some of the animals that have been helped by our guest Stanley Temple's efforts. As a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation, he's here to talk more about endangered species, de-extinction, and the conservation efforts to protect these animals and their habitats. Also, EJ is here from the Jackson Zoo to tell us about a brand new baby hippo that was born there. Join the conversation with comments and calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We have two guests to visit with today. We'll talk to Dr. Stanley Temple, the Beers Bascom Professor Emeritus in Conservation at the University of Wisconsin. And from the Jackson Zoo, we have E.J. Rivers. The echo parakeet, the whooping crane, the trumpeter swan, those are just some of the animals that have been helped by our guest, Stanley Temple's efforts. As a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation, he's here to talk more about endangered species, de-extinction, and conservation efforts to protect these animals and their habitats. Also, EJ is here from the Jackson Zoo to tell us about a brand new baby hippo that was born there recently. Join our conversation this morning with your comments and calls. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. <laughs> How are you? There we go. Everybody yeah, responds. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading my script here. <laughs> uh, we're going to start out actually with an email that we got last week but didn't uh, have a chance to get to on the air, and it's for Dr. Major. Uh, says, my dog is a Jack Russell Terrier mix, 12 years old, white with black spots. I've noticed just recently that his right front leg has four bumps like pimples, small in size, but noticeable. He's still so energetic and has not slowed down much. Should I be worried that these lesions may be something serious like cancerous tumors? Enjoy listening to the show. And uh, hopefully she's listening again today. This comes from Jacqueline in uh, from somewhere in North Mississippi, looks like. I wish we had a photo, you know, so we could actually see what these look like. But a lot of dogs develop. Papillomas, uh, which are wart-like growths, these sound like they're small. Uh, my best suggestion for you, though, is to take—I uh, didn't see a name there—take your little dog to your veterinarian and let him look at them. But based on what you're saying, they're probably benign. And uh, but you know, 30 years ago, I may have said, "Let's watch it." Uh, now, it really. We see a lot of skin cancer, and I would rather see you take this little dog in, have it checked, and hopefully it's nothing of consequence. And, yeah, I would guess when there's something unusual like that, uh, probably is safer and a better idea to early on when you see something like that to, to you know, schedule a, a visit to the vet just to make sure that there isn't anything more sinister or serious. Absolutely. All right, uh, so this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Major's here if you have a pet question for us. We're going to be talking conservation today and endangered species with uh, two guests. Dr. Stanley Temple is a professor emeritus in conservation at the University of Wisconsin. Also visiting us from the Jackson Zoo is E.J. Rivers. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Temple, thanks for joining us on the show this morning. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I was watching a little bit of a TED Talk uh, online that you had, and it, it, it would appear to me, if I remember correctly, that sort of the idea of conservation, uh, preserving habitat, that kind of thing, that's been something that you've really been interested in since a, a kid. Oh, that's absolutely right. And I've spent my entire career working on saving endangered species and the habitats on which they depend. 
So uh, what is it in your background, do you think, that sort of pointed you in that direction? Well, I know I had a very important early childhood mentor, a woman that went on to considerable um, fame, uh, Rachel Carson. Mm-hmm. She was one of my bird-watching buddies when I was eight, nine years old and certainly had a strong influence on me. But as I sort of grew up a bit, I had other other influences, and one of them that we'll talk about here is Aldo Leopold, mm-hmm. probably one of the most influential conservationists of the 20th century. So tell us a little bit more about him. Well, Aldo Leopold really was a remarkable person. He uh, started his career in conservation in the U.S. Forest Service and created, actually, the first wilderness area officially protected on publicly owned land. But his real passion was wildlife. And in mid-career, he left the Forest Service and shifted his focus to wildlife conservation his path crossed to Mississippi at that point. He did a early wildlife survey here in Mississippi that was sort of a baseline, really, for subsequent studies of wildlife populations in the state. But what really made him famous was that he was essentially the person who defined modern wildlife management. He wrote the first book on wildlife management and became the first professor at any university anywhere in the world whose job was focused on wildlife management. I was lucky enough to uh, eventually occupy the position that traced right back to Aldo Leopold's position at the University of Wisconsin. But in a broader sense, what really has influenced the entire environmental movement was something that Leopold came up with that he called the land ethic. And he concluded after a lifetime of trying to get conservation practiced that it really wasn't going to work unless it had an ethical basis, unless there was a moral imperative for human beings to live in harmony with the rest of nature. He called it his land ethic. Uh, Most people, if they know about his work, uh, we'll know it from his most famous book called The Sand County Almanac. Um, it's often considered to be the Bible of the modern environmental movement. So when when was he doing this work? Well, it was the early, early 20th century. He was born in 1887 and died in 1948. <clears throat> um, so when he was here in Mississippi, it was 1928 to 1929. Um, he had a good time while he was here. Um, traveling all over the state. He managed to uh, carve out a little bit of time to go quail hunting and explore the Pascagoula River. Um, But most of it was basically the first time that anyone had tried to do a comprehensive assessment of the status of wildlife and wildlife conservation in the state. And the notable thing about his trip to uh, Mississippi was that it was the only state in the Union at that time that had no official government wildlife agency, no official wildlife conservation program at all. You were really unique. And it was on the heels of Leopold's visit just three years later uh, that you finally did get a, a game commission that would carry on wildlife conservation work to the present. So, so I guess before him and others like him, it was pretty much there was no regard for natural habitat. And I guess maybe in the zeal of expansion of our country, uh, maybe people didn't pay as much attention to the natural resources and animals. I think that's exactly right. We had this sort of pioneer mentality that the natural resources of the country were inexhaustible. And um, as a result, we, we treated it without much regard and during the 19th century um, caused a number of species to either go extinct or be very, very close to extinction. And, of course, we uh, destroyed a lot of habitat during that westward expansion. Essentially, some ecosystems of North America almost disappeared. The tall grass prairies of the Midwest became essentially the the food-producing area of the country, and uh, the wildlife there suffered. 
We're visiting on Creature Comforts this morning with Dr. Stanley Temple, who is Professor Emeritus in Conservation at the University of Wisconsin. Also, we're going to be talking in just a few minutes about EJ, uh, two EJ Rivers from the Jackson Zoo, about an exciting new birth there at the zoo. Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions. So it's uh, going to be a busy day. We've got some open phone lines for you at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Um, so, Dr. Temple, when did the idea of, uh, you know, having a list of, of endangered species and, and sort of bringing more attention uh, to some of the, the casualties of, of maybe previous um, disconcern, I guess, about our environment and wildlife? Well, we can trace that almost to a day and almost to an hour. Uh, one of the real turning points in American conservation was the extinction of the passenger pigeon. The passenger pigeon had been the most abundant bird in North America and arguably the most abundant bird in the world. And in the span of 50 years, in the second half of the 19th century, we essentially drove this species to extinction uh, through market hunting, through killing them for commercial sale as a, a food source. And when I say we know to the hour, um, the very last passenger pigeon died in captivity um, at the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, As is often the case with the last living individual of a species, she had a name. Her name was Martha. And she died shortly after noon um, on September 1st, 1914. And that event was a real shock to the American psyche that in such a short period of time, we'd taken this abundant species and pushed it over the brink. And you can really trace the emergence of the 20th century conservation movement uh, to the death of, of that bird. Almost every conservation action that took place in the early 20th century mentioned the passenger pigeon as the motivation for the law or the policy. So it was really a pivotal event. We need to take a quick break. We've got some open phone lines for your calls this morning. We're talking with Dr. Stanley Temple, Professor Emeritus in Conservation at the University of Wisconsin. Our guest also is E.J. Rivers from the Jackson Zoo. We'll bring E.J. in on the conversation after this short break. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio goes off the beaten path with diverse perspectives and award-winning content, attracting an audience who appreciate honesty and value. Sound familiar? Reach your target audience with an MPB underwriting credit. For more information, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. To call the show, dial 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or email animals at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guests today are Dr. Stanley Temple, the uh, professor emeritus in conservation at the University of Wisconsin, and E.J. Rivers is here from the Jackson Zoo. We're talking about uh, conservation and endangered species this morning, also looking for any pet questions that you might have or wildlife observations that you'd be willing to share with us. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 
7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Got a caller on the line, so we invite uh, Kelly in this morning. Kelly, go ahead, please. You're on the air. Good morning. Just had a question for Dr. Major. I have a uh, great little rescue dog that I've just taken in in the last couple of months, and uh, he has reached six years, or excuse me, six months of age, and I was wanting Dr. Major's thoughts on the appropriate time to neuter. I appreciate uh, the information. I enjoy the show, and I'll hang up and listen now. All right, Kelly, thanks for the call. You know, this is always open for debate, but certainly uh, size-wise and age-wise, it's certainly a good time to go ahead and neuter. I I have some issues with uh, some of the uh, neutering practices, say, at 10 or 12 weeks of age. I think that's way too early. Uh, However, a lot of the rescue groups want that done before they let a dog go. But uh, I'd like to see a little maturity, a little development, and I think six months is an excellent time uh, to neuter this puppy. All right, uh, we got some open phone lines. If you'd like to call in to join the conversation, it's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, we've got some exciting news from the Jackson Zoo to share with you in just a minute. But uh, Dr. Temple wanted a quick follow-up. We had talked about uh, sort of the pa- the extinction of the passenger pigeon being kind of the a seminal moment in the idea of conservation and, and protecting endangered species. And I think the uh, one thing that maybe people don't realize is, uh, you know, wildlife is not in a vacuum. And so if something happens to one creature, one species, it, it has some effects elsewhere. No, absolutely. And, of course, if you can imagine the extinction of the most abundant bird in the eastern United States, you knew that had to have some impact. And, indeed, forest ecologists tell us that it changed the composition of the eastern forest. And something that is uh, personally significant to me as a victim of Lyme disease is that the epidemiologists have now decided that the epidemic of Lyme disease that we've experienced in the mid-20th century probably traces its roots back to the extinction of the passenger pigeon. Mm. Passenger pigeons were so good at cleaning up all of the nuts and seeds in the forest uh, that small rodents that are the primary reservoir for the Lyme disease-producing organism uh, were never able to explode in numbers. And once the passenger pigeon was gone and there were these periodic abundances of food in the forest, these small rodents exploded in numbers. The ticks that uh, fed on these small rodents uh, also attached themselves to us and transmit the disease. So, yes, very often, you know, an extinction has a way of coming back and biting us. And interesting that it's that it's not just tomorrow or the day after, but this is really, I think, why I guess it's so important is that we, you know, there's some ramifications that might occur decades later. That's right. Uh, as I mentioned, E.J. Rivers is visiting with us from the Jackson Zoo. E.J., thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting. I'm learning so much from Dr. Temple and Dr. Major. So, um, First of all, remind us, uh, when is the Jackson Zoo open? The Jackson Zoo is open every single day from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. except December 25th. We do close a couple of hours early on certain days like Christmas Eve, which is when the baby pygmy hippo, Zamora, was born. She waited until after the keepers left and then (laughs) gave us the present when they came in for their Christmas Day protocol. So it was really, really cool. But uh, we're located on 2918 um, West Capitol Street in Jackson. All right. So you told us. So it's uh, the pygmy hippo was the uh, the new addition at the zoo. Uh, tell us a little bit about pygmy hippos. Pygmy hippos are um, about a fourth of the size of their cousins. The large hippo that everybody you know, hungry, hungry hippo that everybody's familiar with. Um, they are nocturnal, whereas their um, cousins live um, near rivers and lakes and stuff like that, and, and in open plains. These guys are definitely more into the forest, and they're reclusive. They don't travel in packs. Um, unless they are mating, they don't really hang out with, with each other. And when they come across other species in the wild, they kind of keep to themselves. They kind of ignore everybody. So they've been really, really difficult to spot and then to study. Most of what we know about pygmy hippos is learned from zoos and reserves in uh, South Africa. 
And that's one point I wanted to talk about is that uh, in addition to being a great place to see the animals and a fun, you know, family outing, there's a lot of research, animal research going on behind the scenes at zoos. I started at the zoo two years ago, and it amazes me how much research we do. There is constantly some sort of test taking or materials. They're doing samples and sending them off all over the world every single day. I think there's more than like 140 studies going on at any one time at the zoo. Our vet tech is kept incredibly busy, and the pygmy hippos are one of the most important important. We actually have um, a young lady, Dr. Gabriella Flackey from the University of Western Australia that comes, she gets study materials all the time and she visited us last November to actually see um, Ralph and Clementine and I'm I'm pretty sure she was pretty excited when she found out that they they actually conceived and had a baby. So, um, and that, it was just really, really cool. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Looks like we've got some callers on the line, so why don't we go back to the phones, beginning again with uh, Gary, who's called in from Rankin County this morning. Go ahead, Gary. You're on the air. Uh, yes, this question is for Dr. Temple, and it's kind of twofold. I was wondering what he knew about the updates on the Ivory Bill Woodpecker and if there are any chances that they could be found again maybe in Cuba, and I'll hang up and listen to his answer. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the call. Well, the ivory-billed woodpecker certainly caused quite a few, quite a stir about a decade ago when someone thought they had seen one in Arkansas. Um, prior to that, the last ivory bill sighting that could be absolutely verified uh, was in the 1940s. So that was a pretty long span of time without anyone seeing an ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, it turned out after a very concerted search of the area where the alleged sighting had taken place over several years involving tens of thousands of hours of searching, uh, they came up empty-handed. So the conclusion was that it probably, the sighting had been a misidentification. And somewhat ironically, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the group that maintains the official global catalog of endangered species, they have a rather stringent um, requirement for declaring a species extinct. And they need to have a multi-year concerted search that comes up empty-handed. So somewhat ironically, in our attempt to uh, find this elusive ivory-billed woodpecker, we actually met the criteria for finally officially declaring it extinct. You asked about Cuba. The Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker, close relative of the bird that we had here in the U.S., had been seen more frequently into the 1970s even. But the area of forest where it had been seen um, was was harvested, and the habitat was pretty much lost. And since then, there have been no additional sightings of the ivory-billed woodpecker there. So uh, presumably, we have now reached the point where the ivory-billed woodpecker can be considered, like the passenger pigeon, to be extinct. Okay. Uh, we've got more woodpecker conversation, and it comes from uh, Bill in Greenwood. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning. Uh, yes, I got the question about to the doctor. Uh, since the uh, passenger pigeon was so so uh, such a large amount, uh, has there been anybody who has maybe seen any after nineteen fourteen, and uh, could there possibly be any uh, little small pockets of them surviving now? And and also about the ivory build. Uh, I understand it was in Cuba, but. Was it on any other islands besides Cuba or, or any other place besides the United States, maybe like Canada or somewhere? Well, let's take the first one because it's easier, or the second question because it's easiest. No, the ivory-billed woodpecker was only found in the southern U.S., essentially in the Gulf Coast states and Cuba. Um, for the passenger pigeon, the one truly remarkable thing is that this bird was not only abundant, but it lived in huge flocks, flocks that numbered in the hundreds of millions of birds. Some of the early accounts uh, described when a flock was passing overhead that it would darken the sky for three days continuously. Um, so this was a bird that didn't live a solitary life. Um, it lived as part of large flocks and 
it's pretty hard to miss a flock of birds that darkens the sky for for three days. So <laughs> I don't think there's any chance that the passenger pigeon escaped our notice. In fact, the last passenger pigeon in the wild um, was seen and shot in 1902. And in the aftermath of that, there were some sizable rewards offered for any valid sighting of a passenger pigeon in the wild. And all that money went unclaimed. No one could find one. And I was just going to interject here that we do have several really interesting historical accounts of passenger pigeons here in Mississippi. So they were an animal that was here in abundance and harvested here. And we've talked about Fanny Cook on this show, who was also a, a, a collaborator of Aldo Leopold. And she had a, a story that her father had told her about them as children running through the flocks and harvesting them actually um, while they ran through the flocks of passenger pigeons, there were so many on mm. their farm. So it was, it was. This was something that happened right here in Mississippi too. It absolutely did. And um, one of your early uh, naturalists, Lincecum, had yes. an observation of a nesting um, in northern Mississippi, um, and the nesting colony covered thirty square miles. And wow. his account said that in that thirty square miles, essentially every tree limb had passenger pigeon nests on it. So it was another one of those, you know, probably hundreds of millions of birds that nested there. So I guess the only one happy about that would be the statues, uh, that so that the pigeons won't uh, hang out on there anymore. Uh, although I guess maybe that's a different kind of pigeon. But I'll tell you, some yeah. of the early naturalists, you can just imagine if a flock of hundreds of millions of <laughs> pigeons passes overhead continuously for three days, there's pigeon poop to be contended with. Yeah, in fact, the accounts do say that they could smell where the passenger pigeon flock was, particularly when it was roosting. You know, that you could... We've got some more calls to get to. Next up is um, Bob, who's on the road this morning. Good morning, Bob. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Dr. Temple, uh, uh, 50 years ago when I attended college, I ran across a book, and it was a profound experience to read one, a, a book called The Sand County Almanac. And I lost my copy over the years, and I've been looking around for one and haven't been able to find it. It's about the sand counties in northern Wisconsin. Is that your home state? It is, and my connection to Aldo Leopold, who was the author of A Sand County Almanac, uh, runs deep. Um, in my retirement from the academic position that he once held, I'm now a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Uh, wow. A Sand County Almanac, which was uh, published um, after Aldo Leopold died. Uh, he died of a heart attack at age 51, having just learned that his book would be published. Um, that book has gone on to sell over 10 million copies. It's one of the most read environmental books in the world. And you shouldn't have any trouble finding it because it's been in multiple editions and um, multiple um, versions. But it is a masterpiece. You get one at the Natural Science Museum here in Jackson. There you go. If your local bookstore doesn't have it, the museum does. Uh, It's been translated, I think, into a dozen different languages and has left a real mark on the environmental movement. And as you indicated, it is a book that really touches people when they when they read it he was not only a a good naturalist and and scientist and conservationist he was a superb writer writer and it's a great piece of literature all right bob good to hear from you we need to take another break when we get back we're going to continue talking about uh, conservation and endangered species we have two guests in studio this morning dr stanley temple is professor emeritus in conservation at the university of wisconsin and visiting us from the jackson zoo is ej rivers we'll be back with more creature comforts after this short break.
From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guests today are from the Jackson Zoo, E.J. Rivers, and also we're visiting with Dr. Stanley Temple, who is Professor Emeritus in Conservation at the University of Wisconsin. Another phone call to get to. We say good morning to Joe in Tippa County. Good morning, Joe. Hey, good morning. Go ahead. Talking about extinction and consequences, uh, anybody raised on a farm know what a nuisance cucklebirds are. Well, we used to have large flocks of parakeets in the United States, particularly in the South, and the parakeets ate cucklebirds. And uh, they were colorful that there was demand for them for women's hats, particularly in England and different places. And uh, so they were harvested for, to decorate hats. So they became extinct. And then we growing up had to struggle with cucklebirs all over the farm. Mm-hmm. I just don't pass that long. All right. Well, that bird was the, the Carolina parakeet, the only uh, parakeet in the eastern U.S. And you're absolutely right that it did have a, uh, a fondness for cockleburs, um, but it also had a fondness for our agricultural crops. And so you had a bird that had a, a sort of a, a mixed uh, reputation among farmers. And the implication was that, yes, it, it was hunted for its feathers, but even more important, perhaps, was that when the flocks of these parakeets would visit a farm, uh, the farmers would shoot them. Uh, the last Carolina parakeets uh, hung on, actually, until the, the late 1920s in Florida. But like the passenger pigeon, they're, they're gone now. Uh, we're also visiting today with E.J. Rivers from the Jackson Zoo. E.J. was telling us about their new uh, addition at the zoo last December, I think she mentioned, a baby pygmy hippo. Um, so, E.J., when you have endangered species at a zoo, are there more regulations, some things that you have to be concerned about and, and do because the, the animal is an endangered species? Well, I think that applies to all animal proto- animal care protocol. We are just more conscious, I think, of endangered species, especially since I think more than a third of the animals that we have at the Jackson Zoo are either endangered or threatened. And the pygmy hippo was just a really nice example of what can happen. They're actually, um, they breed well in captivity. So we've been very fortunate that we can have and we actually have a new male coming in shortly so that we might be able clementine is an excellent mom right now so we're hoping that as zamora grows older maybe down the line we can have another you know and then the ssp the species survival plan um they do the genetics so that we know where everybody is and and who's father and mother and how they're going to they're going to come um how the babies are pretty you know you have a general idea of if it's going to be a good match or not so we have high hopes and I would imagine, and maybe not, but it's sort of like a zoo network where information is shared among, and I guess maybe that's how animals get moved maybe from one zoo to another? That's the species survival plan. We call it the SSP, and it is regulated usually by the AZA, the um, Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, and we are we work with them with the pygmy hippos. We work with them with the red rough lemurs. We just got a female in and also in December, Nikina, and we have high hopes for her, Timmy or Phoenix. Um, um, we have some tamarins that are coming in. They're part of the species survival program. Um, the otters, just about every animal. The Sumatran tigers, Emerson, sorry, and Echo, baby Echo, they were a part of the species survival plan. So, yeah, we work very closely with other zoos. And there is um, a very strong bond between zoos that allows us to make phone calls. And, you know, this is what we need. This is what you need. This is how we help each other. We we share all of the information that we learn from these species. And we share conservation knowledge and, you know, all sorts of really cool stuff between us. So when people visit the zoo, are they doing anything to help conservation efforts? They're actually doing tons to help conservation efforts. 25 cents of every single admission goes towards our change for change program which helps four we have the ape 
tag, which is for great apes like orangutans, chimpanzees, and stuff like that. We have tiger conservation going on. And we actually, on property, we our vet tech, Donna Todd, does raptor rehab. We've actually just released a couple of um, barn owls. Um, she takes in birds of prey from all over the state, bald eagles, owls, um, anything, hawks, anything you can think of that have been injured. Um, and then she rehabs them back to health and if they can be released they are re-released back to the area that they came from in order to save that ecology it's very cool to see it happen she just picked up a couple of baby barn owls the other day and brought them in and she's gonna she's gonna rehab them and see if we can get them back to where they need to be this is creature comforts on mpb think radio we've got another caller on the line so we're off to starkville for this call as we say hello to audrey audrey you're on the air go ahead please hi um i have a question um, I recently adopted a, he's now about three months old, lab mix. And my husband and I were just wondering what type of flea slash heartworm medication um, we need to get for him. We've heard of trisexis. Um, we've also heard that that's just kind of a, perhaps too strong for him. Anyway, um, so that's my question. What would y'all prescribe? Um, I'll hang up now and listen. Thank okay. You. Thank you. Uh, very essential to uh, get this puppy on some sort of heartworm preventive. There's a whole host of them, and uh, in my opinion, Trifex is, is safe to use and is okay. You do not give it to dogs that have seizures, though, because it doesn't cause seizures, but it can potentiate uh, seizures in an animal that already is seizure-prone. Uh, Trifexis is one that takes care of prevention of heartworms. It uh, prevents fleas. And it also does intestinal parasites. So it's kind of a triple thing. Uh, there are others. ProHeart 6 is a six-month shot. Uh, very effective. And it's given every six months. Usually wait till the dog uh, gets uh, appropriate size uh, so it's not continuing to grow uh, at that time. Six months is usually a good time. Uh, others are Revolution, HeartGuard, uh, and... I have a heart. There's just quite a few, almost what you would call generic brands. The main thing is on the monthly heartworm preventive, please give it the same time every month. It's important to do that. Otherwise, you may have a skip or break in that particular medicine. The thing that um, is somewhat disconcerting is the fact that they've done surveys and probably of all the people that give heartworm medicine, they probably only buy enough for 75 to 80% of the year. So you know that some of the dogs are not getting it. And here in the South, we really need to be on it year-round. So good luck to you. And uh, talk to your vet about that as far as what to give. But uh, there's a whole host of uh, opportunities or choices from the standpoint of heartworm and flea preventive as well. Thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on uh, MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines if you'd like uh, to ask a question of our guest, Dr. Stanley Temple, or something about the Jackson Zoo with E.J. Rivers or a pet question. Give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So Dr. Temple, when when um, I guess there's endangered species, and I think uh, EJ mentioned there are some other not as threatened categories, so obviously there's kind of a ranking system. Um, how do how do we go about monitoring these populations to see whether they're becoming more endangered, maybe that they're doing better, and that to maybe that would you know uh, help us formulate what we do in the future? Well, here in the U.S., the motivation for keeping close tabs on species that are declining, we call them threatened, or species that have actually crossed the threshold and been officially listed as endangered, uh, is the Endangered Species Act of 1973. That was our national commitment that we would not allow any species in the U.S. to go extinct, and that for species that did become endangered, we would do everything we could to recover them to a viable status. And that's now um, the cornerstone, really, of our efforts to, to keep species from going extinct in the country. It's been quite a successful piece of legislation in that only a very small number of species have gone extinct in the U.S. since the law was passed. And somewhat ironically, most of those were actually extinct 
before the law <laughs> was was passed. We just, like the ivory-billed woodpecker, we hadn't been able to verify that they were really gone. But the thing that most people don't understand is that once a species gets in that deep a trouble that they are listed as endangered, bringing them back to a safe status is not going to happen quickly. Sometimes it took decades for them to become endangered, and it takes a long time to recover them as well. And I know some people get impatient and say, well, you know, the Endangered Species Act um, still has lots of species that are endangered, and relatively few species have actually come off the endangered list. Uh, but it's basically the challenge that it takes a while. You have several species uh, down here in Mississippi that have come off the endangered list. Uh, the American alligator, probably first and foremost, uh, peregrine falcons, uh, bald eagles, ospreys, were all species that were endangered that have, have come off the list. Um, AJ, could you tell us a little bit about uh, education programs at the zoo about uh, endangered species? The moment you walk on property, somebody on staff is going to help you understand a little bit about what we mean by conservation and what you can do as just one person in the city of Jackson and in the state of Mississippi to help uh, what I call responsible living, um, where you just keep an, uh, you know, an eye out for what you're doing. Reduce, reuse, recycle. We love our recycling programs, and we're constantly on each other, as well as our guests. It's like, can that be recycled? Did you see the little the little triangle at the bottom, and what does that mean? Plus, um, when we do, like, Safari Zoo Camp, which is going on this week, and the summer camps that are coming up, we, start, we like to start young. We'll talk to those kids about, this is how you protect the, the land around you. This is how, um, if you are from a hunting family this is how you can hunt responsibly to save creatures like the red wolves which are still i think there's only like 200 on reserve now um or like the birds of prey that it was nice when the eagle came off the endangered list but there's still several that we need to watch out for that people you know especially young people you need to know you can't just shoot at anything you need to be careful and look at what you're doing so because you could affect so much around you um we also have the dinos exhibit that is starting on april first where you can see the past and hopefully protect the future we'll be telling people about these large creatures that existed so many millions of years ago and then they'll be able to go into the rest of the park and see the the zebras and the lemurs and the tigers and the red wolves and you know these animals we still have can we protect them so that they won't go the way of the dinos so we're, we're working on that as well we need to take one final break this hour. When we come back, we'll have more discussion plus a couple of questions. There are phone lines open as well. So if you'd like to join in today, call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That phone number is one 672 7464 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up Creature Comforts after this. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Guests in studio today are Dr. Stanley Temple, professor emeritus in conservation at the University of Wisconsin, and from the Jackson Zoo, we're visiting with E.J. Rivers. We've got some phone calls to get to on the line, uh, but Dr. Temple wanted to ask you about a term that sounds interesting to me, de-extinction. What is that all about? Well, it's a very new word about a subject that most people are vaguely aware of through seeing the movie or reading the book Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. And it's the uh, notion that we can use modern biotechnology to resurrect an extinct species. And the way biotechnology is advancing, um, it looks increasingly likely that we might actually be able to, to pull it off. 
And perhaps not surprisingly, because of its iconic status, the passenger pigeon has been one of the holy grails of the de-extinction crowd, along with, uh, surprisingly, the woolly mammoth. And uh, I'm not holding my breath, uh, but at least there are people working on it. And I think everyone who saw the movie Jurassic Park will remember that it was a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. It didn't end well. (laughs) And when you attempt to do something which has never happened in the history of life on Earth, extinction has always been forever. When you do something that epic, you ought to be very cautious for unintended consequences. Yeah, I can see that there there are some ethical issues there, and that, that'll be interesting as the technology advances to see how the other side of the equation plays out. We've yeah. got a couple of passenger pigeons at the Natural Science Museum, so I guess we, we've got the DNA there. Yeah, you've got <laughs> yeah, some, some old DNA, DNA that yeah. might might help. <laughs> let's, uh, let's work through some phone calls. We'll start with... Um, Chet's on the line. Good morning, Chet. What do you have for us? Oh, I just had a question. Um, with the federal government releasing its budget guidelines for the coming year and uh, presumably years to come, uh, how, how are the museums and our environmental programs going to function without any federal dollars? Yeah, it's a little bit scary, and you know, if listeners are concerned about it, it would be a good time to write letters and make phone calls. Because um, there's so many serious, serious issues and so many things that need money. But when we're talking about things like extinction, as far as we know right now, that is forever. And it's uh, when we when we don't fund programs that address environmental problems, we're making decisions that are going to have effects, you know, 100 years from now even. So uh, thank you, Chet. That's a good thing to bring up. All right, uh, let's move on. Next, we've got uh, Sheila in Jackson. Good morning, Sheila. You're on the air. You know, the gentleman that just asked the question is the, is the uh, question that I had, so I'll move on and ask another question. Okay. Uh, mine is that so much um, of extinction and uh, the loss of uh, animals' diversity is caused by human um, expansion, I guess. Uh, how do we control the loss of habitat because I think that's one of the major contributors to losing uh, species. So how do you control um, losing habitat when the human population just keeps growing and growing? We certainly have to get smarter about how we use our land and the land ethic that Leopold developed. Stan, you may want to address that from that angle. Well, that's exactly right. That was uh, Leopold's plea, was that we adopt some sort of a, of a moral compass in our dealings with the natural world. Um, and you're absolutely right that virtually all of the species that um, have gone extinct recently and that are endangered today, it is because of us. And habitat loss is one of the, the major causes. And You can really boil down our impact on the natural world into three characteristics of our species. The first, of course, that you noted is our ever-growing population size. But it's more than just that. It's also our, our affluence, our consumption of resources that can drive habitat loss. And finally, the third thing is our use of technologies that are very damaging to the environment. And you can reduce the problem in any one of those three ways. You could have fewer people, you could be consuming less, and you could not use as many damaging technologies. I wonder if, as a, just as an individual, sometimes I like to look like in my backyard, and I'm like, do I really need to change that? Aren't I more comfortable with it just the way it is, as opposed to, quote, quote, making it better or adding something that humans have developed? Do you want a patch of grass or you want a patch of grass with concrete on it? And you kind of have to just as a and teach your kids the same thing. It's like, is it isn't it more comfortable the way Mother Nature did it or do we really have to change it? Is it absolutely necessary? There are so many things that you can do as an individual perhaps on on your own property. One of the popular things now is to make a pollinator garden for butterflies and, and other creatures to, to provide bird feeders, to do plantings for birds. But probably the most important thing that individuals can do is to think about their consumer choices and use your purchasing power to encourage things that are helpful to the environment and discourage things that are damaging. 
you know, our friend Felder tomorrow morning, he, he likes to talk about seriously considering how much yard do you need. There's so many other plants that can be more beneficial and really be more fun for you. Uh, if you can get used to not mowing so much and not having so much grass, then you open yourself up to providing a lot more habitat in your yard. we got uh, two calls to get to. Let's see if we can work through these before the end of the hour. We start in Osaka. Kathleen is on the line. Good morning, Kathleen. I think I have a small question in the line of extinction, but it's a big <laughs> problem right now. We're talking about BB. We finally got them neutered. And uh, he's doing great. He's up to 16.4 pounds. Wow. And um, his neck is fat. And I cannot find a collar. He will keep on. Um, I bought six in the last two months, and he will claw them and take them off. I need something that is uh, cat-proof to keep on his fat neck. Well, he's... He still stays outside, or is he inside? Well, you can't keep him inside. Okay. He does come okay. in at night if I bribe him with a bowl of milk. Right. Well, my question to you is, why do you want a collar on him? Because I have a neighbor that likes to trap cats and shoot them. He thinks okay. he's uh, appointed here to protect the neighborhood from domestic cats. Right. Well, there's there there are issues with uh, cats running loose, you know, about killing songbirds, this sort of thing. But... The fact he's an outside cat, I would say that he may damage himself if you're trying to put a collar on him. You might try a harness. Uh, you could also spray paint him uh, <laughs> with something that's not toxic. So they would know that, you know, purple cat is not bad. We see that at Easter, but it, it's use a non-toxic uh, Pain. I was joking about that, actually. But uh, very difficult to keep a collar on a cat if he doesn't want it on. Yeah, I, th- I think the hardest. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Although I do like the purple cat, though. That's that's that would be a lot of fun. And keeping him indoors, I would really yeah. encourage well, to, for the sake know, of your cat start. and wildlife. Yes, yes. <laughs> keep him indoors. Yeah. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife. And also from contributions from listeners like you. Our show's to do produced today by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Sharita Brent. So. For Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, E.J. Rivers, and Dr. Stanley Temple, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next to 10, it's MPB's Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.